Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wildstorm Addiction. This is episode 18 for the week of October 20th. I'm Joe David Solis. And I'm Ben Murphy. Tonight, we got four issues to review, but we are going to go over some news tonight. Before I do that, uh, do want to remind you, we will be talking about comics that are released within the week, and we will spoil them. However, all written reviews on the website are spoiler-free unless otherwise noted. Unfortunately, we're open with a bit of a downer news, which uh, we didn't need any more of this. Definitely coming out of left field, colorist Johnny Wrench passed away at age 28 of a heart attack. Johnny worked on a lot of Wildstorm titles, including Welcome to Tranquility, One Foot in the Grave, which we're currently still reviewing, Victorian Undead, Killapalooza, and just a whole bunch of others. Uh, he's just always been associated with Wildstorm one way, or, one way or another, and you know, him passing away at age of 28 of a heart attack is just crazy. I just uh, we sent out our condolences to his family. And, you know, at least we do have some of his work that we can still enjoy. So we had that. And since there's pretty much no more Wildstorm news coming out anymore, uh, I decided to add in a little tidbit here called Wildstorm Alumni News and just kind of cover where some of our favorite creators are going to. Uh, Wildcats writer Adam Beechin has been writing the Batman Beyond miniseries. It's going to start as an ongoing series in, in January. And uh, Wildcats penciler Tim Seeley will actually write and pencil an Ant-Man and the Wasp 3-issue miniseries beginning in November. The other big one this week was uh, Rebecca Isaac's new creator-owned project called Magus, which she first announced on episode 2 of our podcast, <laughs> will release in December from 12 Gauge Comics. And you can go to comicbookresources.com and see some of the preview pages. So just some uh, ideas of, you know, people have been talking about, well, where are we going to go now that Wildstorm's done? Well, there's lots of lots of good places to go and lots of creators to still support. So anyway, Ben, you want to take us into our first review of the night? Sure thing. First up, we have Deviate Gods and Monsters, number seven of eight, written by Brian Wood, art by Rebecca Isaacs, and cover by Fiona Staples. This issue uh, begins off with Evo running for his life from sublime's tribe and they're coming after him with horses and uh bow and arrow and he's running for his life obviously and he gets shot quickly in the shoulder with an arrow he's kind of run up against uh, some mountains and doesn't really have a place to go but he is able to use his dexterity and bite one of the attackers and and do a lot of really cool stuff in in these four quick pages and uh Basically, one of one of the guys laughs and goes, "Dog boy, indeed, more like a wolf." I'm playing like I think I know how he talks, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, he says, "You know, if you can do that to our enemies, you know, we'll be your pack, like a wolf pack." So I thought that was kind of funny. And then, and then we go into uh, Copycat's voiceover, and, and she this this issue reminded me of issue one greatly because. She's in the carrier, obviously, and she's being interviewed or interrogated, <laughs> whichever way you want to see that. Yeah, some interviews could seem like an interrogation. <laughs> yeah, and, and this one felt like issue number one to me because there's a lot of her voiceover in this issue. But basically, they jump into Jocelyn, and Jocelyn is looking up at the two sons that are part of this world. You know, Copycat is on the world, and she's like, well, what's going on? And she's like, hey, Jem." Something's weird's going on. See? And she's like, no, what? And basically, Jocelyn points out that uh, something funny's going on with the suns on the world, and, and she knows that something's up. And basically, Copycat keeps you know doing her voiceover, and, and she's being asked about Jocelyn in this issue. And the whole issue, all the voiceover is basically 
about her more or less, and and I'll get into that. And and now we flip over to um, Frostbite and, and his tribe, and basically he's preparing them for a fight. But what's being explained here is about Jocelyn from Copycat's point of view and how she stood above the rest of them, the Deviates in particular, about how Jocelyn didn't want to become a god in their world. Not in the respect that um, Powerhouse checked out, but Jocelyn just wanted to be human and she basically was able to just be one with the people and she didn't use her powers or anything like that to become a god. So she did something similar that Powerhouse did, which was try not to be a god in this world, but she did it in a more humanistic way. He kind of checked out and didn't want to be part of anything. Anyways, uh, Copycat explains Jocelyn's uh, ability to help the people that were there on the world immediately as soon as she stepped on and how she should have inspired the rest of the Deviates instead of what happened, which was they all you know, decided to team up with different tribes and, and you know, help them be better at war, basically. And you see a little clip of that you know, Frostbite's really torn how his tribe wants to go to war and, you know, he taught them how to become better soldiers and he's like, uh, kind of annoyed and he's like, fine, deploy. And he's like, thank you for your blessing, one of the tribe's people. This will be a, a just and noble war. And he's like, oh, geez. <laughs> and then we go uh, back to the carrier with Copycat and, you know, she's kind of leading these questions back to the interviewers but we don't really know what's coming there's a little bit of foreshadowing there you'll see what we run up to on the last page so then we go back to the world and she's not even explaining things this is kind of real time sort of and basically this is the meeting of the three main tribes that are about to go to war and it is frostbite bliss and it is matthew so basically those three gods in quotes walk to the middle of the battlefield and you know they have their little powwow on on you know how the war is going to go and it's really kind of disturbing because you know they don't hate each other i don't even know if their tribes hate each other uh the other tribes you know but you know they basically figured that this was going to happen and so they may as well just go through with it the little meeting that they have is more like a, a meeting that you would have before a a soccer game or a football game and they flip the coin and you know who don't wants to defend one end and it reads kind of whimsical but it's a really odd reality that these guys are about to do something that will cause a lot of death on this uh this world it's a weird read so basically the next couple pages frostbite and matthew go after one another and, and frostbite kind of antagonizes him and eggs him on and keeps calling him coward and He's not a big fan of that. And then Bliss, Bliss and her tribe jump in on it. I'm not really sure, but somehow Evo and, uh, and Sublime's tribe gets in on it as well. And that's when Copycat takes over again and she starts narrating again. And, and she basically is saying, you know, when, when they were doing Ivana's dirty work, they were restrained and there was a code of sorts. But now that they were on this world... And there was nothing to stop them. They were gods and and they could do whatever they wanted. It, it didn't matter that these casualties were happening. But this is how gods typically act, right? And she's asking these questions because, you know, they were unrestrained. There was no code. 
And then we go to this awesome double page spread where Powerhouse comes and he's huge and angry and it basically stops the entire fight that was happening. I mean, this was an epic world war battle that was going on in this world. And basically he stops the fight and they gather the deviates together. And this is because Jocelyn really wanted to tell them what was going on. And she's like, and everybody else was like, what's going on? We were in the middle of a battle. Why did we need to stop? And this is where Jocelyn explains that there once was two sons on this world when they got there. Um, but if you look closely and she creates a pinhole viewer like you would create as a little kid to view a solar eclipse, she points out that there's actually three suns now and that there's a comet that she expects would come to destroy this world soon, which is kind of odd because, hey, guess what? Wildstorm world's in. <laughs> so anyways, we, we go back to the carrier and... and uh, I guess uh, copycat's done for this evening's interrogation or uh, interview. They even say that the carrier's on the way back to Earth and that they'll leave her for now. And, you know, I'm sure they'll pick back up their interrogation on the next issue and final issue. And as she's walking away, they say that, you know, they're sorry and they send their condolences to copycat. Because on the last page, you see a body with a a body tag on the toe in cold storage. And that is the end of part seven. In my opinion, from how the story was told, I, I would assume that this is Jocelyn and that she is actually dead by the time that the deviates get picked up. But it's not truly said literally. It was a great issue. You know, it read very well. I, I liked it just because, you know, it, it read kind of like, Issue number one did, which Brian was able to go back and forth between a lot of storylines and start pulling them together and have an epic fight. Not only that, but speed things up and slow things down and really move the story along. So I gave this issue an eight. I I thought it was an awesome read. How did you take it, Joe? I actually uh, didn't score it as high, and I think it's because one of the things that I was kind of afraid of with this only being eight issues kind of affected this issue for me. I ended up giving it a seven because we had a little, we had, or not a little, we had a lot of build up to this battle, and and I thought that the battle last issue between just Bliss and Powerhouse was much better than the one we got here, because this one, yeah, it was gearing up to be truly epic, and then and then I just felt like they um, hurried it along so we could hurry up and get to the um, issue with the comet. So that was my my main thing with this is like. You know, all that was awesome, but it, it just felt like so much was was rushed. You know, I wanted to see more. I loved the scenes with Threshold and and Frostbite. And now I just, I wanted a whole issue of just that. That's why I'm starting to feel like maybe this miniseries would have been better, you know, longer than just eight. Maybe it should have been 12 or something. There's just been a few issues. And that way each character would have truly gotten a spotlight issue because Frostbite was one of the ones who really didn't get one. And that's why in this issue, when he came back and he had all these scenes, you know, fighting Threshold, uh, that was really cool because didn't really realize it. But he'd pretty much been missing since early, I think the first two issues, you know, showed him. And then, I mean, he'd been around, but he he wasn't as, uh, I guess, so much in the spotlight anymore as they were going through the other characters. Yeah, I understand that. Frostbite was a pretty heavy hitter in the first series of DV8 Volume 1. Um, before this miniseries came out. So I can understand why 
Brian has downplayed him a lot. There there wasn't like a lot of background that he needed to bring into this miniseries with Frostbite because he was a main character. Um, a lot of the other deviates weren't so much, so I, I can see why he spent more time with each one of those with their own issue. Yeah, I mean, the battles are awesome, and I'd love to see more of them. However, I wasn't as concerned about that because I know that Brian's trying to make a point with this miniseries, and you know, it, it has to do with that relationship of a god versus being human and what that means as somebody with superpowers. So, you know, I, I was able to set that aside a little bit and enjoy, enjoy it for what it was and what he's trying to say. I thought it was great. I guess it's kind of like, like the difference between, you know, what we thought about Red. Oh, which, which by the way, now I said that, I have to correct from last episode that uh, Titanothrope just sent me a message before the podcast, and he is like, uh, the first Wildstorm movie was actually The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. Even though I kind of don't want to remember that movie. But <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, just side note, reminded me when you said that. Uh, Good call. Anyway, but yeah, uh, I also agree that the, the they do allude to the fact that that's probably Freestyle who's dead at the end. Which kind of sucks, you know, the fact that she gets... If that is her, she got all redesigned and everything, and then they kill her. So, <laughs> I guess it doesn't matter, because, yeah, like you said, it's appropriate that the theme here is the end of a world, and that seems to be the common theme now with the Wallstrom universe. So Sure does, unfortunately. But anyway, but no, I mean, I like the issue, and I, I think overall, I mean, overall, it's still a great series, don't get me wrong. I just, that's just kind of what I wanted. And it's just, it, it's because it's because it's such a great series that I'm starting to feel a little cheated, you know, because it feels like they're trying to hurry up and finish it. It's like, no, no, take your time, you know. <laughs> take take as long as you want, you know. Give him four more issues. Of course, especially with Rebecca Isaac's art. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't want to see more battle scenes? Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and move on to our next one, which is Gen 13, number 38, written by Phil Hester, art by Creditorian, cover by Ivan Rice this time, which is pretty cool, because we didn't get to see that one until, until this issue was almost on top of us. <laughs> you know, with everything that's coming down with the, the Wildstorm universe, you know, some, some, we've talked about how some of our um, reviews, you know, may be a little skewed and been really somber lately. This is the first Wildstorm issue, I think, since the announcement that was appropriately somber. <laughs> there was a lot of things that came to head in this issue that I was waiting for, that I saw Phil Hester kind of leading us in this direction, and I just thought it really paid off well in this issue. You know, we open up the issue with uh, Pathcutter uh, rescuing his sister, uh, Emily, and he's now in his um, old superhero guard. He's Sikh, and she apparently was Hyde. You know, they were a little duo back in the day. Although this is kind of retroactive because, you know, we never heard of them before. So they open up with that and then quickly go back to the situation with Burnout and Fairchild and the others uh, after the uh, nuclear power plant they were going to go stop from going uh, into meltdown actually ended up doing just that. And Burnout, last-ditch effort to not let the explosion kill all his friends absorbed all the radiation and in doing so he became pretty much the radiation like he says you know his body's gone but all he is now is this you know basically glowing skeleton you know it's it's a it was pretty cool to see him that way last issue but now we see that he's not obviously not very happy about it it leads us to what i think 
is an awesome scene between him and Fairchild because basically, you know, he tells them that they need to leave because he he basically is the meltdown now and if they stay around him they're all going to die of radiation poison and you know Fairchild of course doesn't want to leave him and you know he makes the commentary he's like hey this is what we do right we're the good guys he's like not too many of us left and she's like less every day you know he tells her you know be strong for the ones you still have then be strong for me Caitlin and and go and they just you know reach out for each other and of course they don't touch their hands and she leaves and it's just like wow I think only long time readers would really appreciate that because I don't think I've ever seen a story where where the, the Gen 13 kids have been in such dire straits. I mean, maybe the end of the first series where, you know, which led up to their original deaths, maybe that was the only other one that I've seen that comes even close to this, but this one just seems so, so much more dire. So I just thought that was an awesome scene. And then we cut back to Pocatello and all the guards of that city are now fighting off uh, Kaizen X and his troops. And so we get a bunch of battle scenes of them fighting them off. And one thing that's that, that's happening in this issue that Hester's doing is he's he's uh, kind of picking up the pace. He's going back and forth between what's happening in Pocatello and what's happening with Fairchild and the others as they're coming back. As the kids are coming back, what I was waiting for to happen to Fairchild finally happens. I was waiting for her to break, and she finally does. I just thought Hester did such a great job of just, you know, capturing her frustration because... She's lost all her friends, you know, she, she counts she counts down, you know, I've lost Roxy, I've lost Sarah, I've lost Grunge, and now Bobby, and, and, you know, she even talks about Lance, you know, Hardbody, even though he, you know, he's not one of the original members, but she lost him too to the robot church, and, you know, she just cracks. I just thought that was so appropriate. I was just waiting for Hester to do that because it just seemed like that's what he was building to. And and uh, surprisingly, the, the other Gen 13 or Gen 14 kid, in this case, that steps up, to snap her out of it is wind sprint. So that was pretty cool to to see her kind of step up and basically just give Fairchild a verbal smack in the face and be like, look, you know, this is the end of the effing world, you know. <laughs> it's like, of course, everybody's lost something. Basically tells her, you know, you just need to deal with it. The rest of, you know, for, with the people who are still here, you know, we can help each other out together. And she tells you, no, we need you. You're the leader of Gen 13. And that kind of brings Fairchild back. But, I mean, that was just... It's a it's kind of a classic moment. It's that you know she is the leader, and there's points in a lot of different stories where the leader just can't take it anymore. You know, and you see their their humanity come through. And in this case, she had all she could stand, and that's when you see the strength of having your having your friends and and other teammates around you to help pick you up when you when you've fallen into a you know a funk like that. You know, and then um, Pathcutter shows up with his sister, and um, he's got the guards of Pocatello right behind them they um are able to quickly deal with them you know because obviously they all they want is emily back because apparently emily's power you know she was the one called hide so her power was to cloak and they've kept her in an unconscious state so that way her body apparently emits the cloaking device as a uh, kind of like as a defense mechanism so that's the reason pocatello was being covered you know people couldn't find it was because of her now, without her, that's how Kaizen X was able to get in there. And so the kids, you know, rally, and, and they're able to make it back just in time to see, you know, the mayor of the city and the few survivors are holed up, and Kaizen X and his forces are closing in, and they're able to make it in time. And, you know, we get another another hand-to-hand battle between Fairchild and Kaizen X. And just when you think things can't get any worse, the rogue robots show up, and then that's the cliffhanger for this issue. 
I was really happy with this issue. I, I thought Bill Hester and Creditorium's run started off really strong and then kind of got a little weak there in the last couple of issues, but I thought it really picked up again here in this issue. I gave it an 8. I was just really happy with this. What did you think, Ben? Yeah, I, I was as well. And, you know, we had talked about the last couple of issues, how when we first learned about hide and seek, you know, about Path Cutter, Cutter's true identity or, you know, his previous identity, and I thought the reveal that, you know, about his sister's power really paid off in this issue. You know, you had seen a whole year of buildup as they were, the kids were traveling to this land and, you know, how it was, you know, this pristine place out in the middle of nowhere that they could get to. And to see what the mayor of the city and what the city was doing to hide itself was cool, but kind of, man, I can't articulate this. Um <laughs> <laughs> uncool as well and and that's why seek you know sought her out and to see how their powers really reflect one another was I, I i thought it really worked well and yeah the raw emotion that poured out of all of the kids in this issue you know especially caitlin and and bobby and and windsprint you know it was just amazing i i haven't read an issue that showed emotion this well in a long long time and especially in this book which is typically a teen book and you know i just thought it all worked very well and you know i'm sad that the next issue that we'll see of gen 13 is the last one that's really a bummer because phil hester really did pour it on and creditorian's art just got stronger with each and every issue so i i had to give this issue an eight loved it yeah i i wish phil hester had been part of I mean, not necessarily Worldstorm, but, you know, at least maybe even World's End just to kind of, I mean, he, he single-handedly has re- revived the Top Cow universe. You know, I'm sure he could have easily done the, the same here for Worldstorm. So, unfortunately, we were only able to get this much, so we'll enjoy what we have. At least he got to end the title. We'll see if hopefully he gets to give the kids a good send-off next issue. I hope, I hope he found out in time about the closure, you know, to be able to do something. I'm not sure he might not have, but we'll see. Right. Uh, up next, we have X-Files, 30 Days of Night, number four of six, written by Steve Niles and Adam Jones. Interior art by Tom Mandrake and cover by Andrea Sorrentino. This issue is gruesome, so prepare yourselves. It is nasty. Awesome to look at, great art, but it's wicked. Uh, it opens on the the vampire that we saw in the last issue that was going after Mulder and Scully in the helicopter that Mulder blew his brains out basically and he fell off the helicopter well this is him on the ground all jacked up and you know big hole through his eye and his head and all his bones broken and busted it's pretty nasty you know and then we get an awesome spread of all you know his vampire buddies hanging out around him looking looking at his nasty tore up body and basically the leader goes get up and we see you know the vampires talking in this really weird language and there's not a really whole there's not a lot that they say even though it looks like there's a lot that they say and basically they're telling them within five pages hey get your butt up i've seen worse before you're fine even though you have a gaping (laughs) hole in your head no big deal get up we got stuff to do (laughs) shake it off walk it off yeah basically and you know he gets up and he cracks his head back into place and his other bones (laughs) 
It's it's uh, kind of humorous, but very, very morbid and disgusting. And then we uh, flip over to Mulder and Scully, and they survived the crash, luckily, somehow. They always do. And, <laughs> you know, they're talking to themselves, and they're keeping themselves warm in the fire by the, you know, from the wreckage, which is funny. And, you know, they're kind of out in the middle of nowhere in Alaska, and they, you know, you know, they're going to die in the extreme temperature if they don't find something soon. So they decide that they're going to follow the trail that, you know, the helicopter took and hopefully they'll be able to find somebody to help them. And then they quickly get found and circled up and it, in the way that it's presented on the page, it looks like it's the same vampires that had circled around the one that was all jacked up. Like they kind of did the same circle around them and that's what they lead you to believe. But what we soon find out is that it's uh, Russians that that are surrounding them, and you know they quickly put up their hands and surrender, and and they're taken in by the Russians, you know, who are funny because they're like FBI as they look at uh, Mulder's uh, his ID, and it's funny. Um, so there's a couple of scientists that are that are Russian that pick them up, and they can talk English, and you know they ask what they're doing out here, and they take them back to their big Diomede Island, um, which is on the Russian border between, you know, Russia and the United States within the Bering Strait. You know, they kind of run them through what, what has been happening, you know, during this time period every year. And, and they believe that there are monsters out there. And, and Mulder's like, yeah, <laughs> you, you can see it on a smug face that he's like, see, I knew, I knew it was something else. But anyways, they, to, in order to tell them, to kind of give them more background, they, they ask them, have you ever heard of the man with no limbs? Which is kind of interesting. You're like, huh? And then they flip back to the, uh, the vampires who decide to start tracking, you know, I guess Mulder and Scully, they have to keep after them because they obviously realize that they themselves are being hunted. But that's just a quick page. And then here on Little Diomede, which is on the American side, these these islands are very close together. I'm sure you can Google map them. But basically, this man with no limbs lives in a cave, and he's lived there for over a century now. And the Russian scientists and Mulder and Scully go to seek answers from the man with no limbs because he obviously knows something about the vampires. They go to meet him, and it's this guy who you don't really see at first and he's like kind of lounging in a web a spider web of sorts it almost you know it's it's more or less like a hammock and he gives his background story you know i'll let you guys read about that but basically he runs into the vampires way back when probably in the 18th century sometime and they tear him limb from limb but because of what he's done they don't let him die they, the vampires actually spit on his wounds and they, they heal up and it keeps him from dying. So he has to live with what he's done. And basically he's the man with no limbs. And, you know, he lives to tell his tale and he tells it to Mulder and Scully. And it's really, really freaky and disturbing. But while they're there, he gives them, I guess, a diary of sorts uh, to give them more information on the vampires. The vampires themselves are also seeking after this man because he has something that they want from him. And they eventually find him in the cave as well. And I assume Mulder and Scully have gone away from now and, you know, 
to go read their di- his diary or whatever it is. Not far enough to not hear him scream when they kill him. <laughs> yeah, basically. So they are after something else that he has, and you know he doesn't help them find it. But there, there was a masthead from the old boat that you know the man with no limbs came on, and they find it in the masthead, and it's this. It looks like a like a mug, like a beer mug, but it's it's encapsulated. And they break it open, and they hear the man with no limbs scream as you know, they torture him once more. I guess, do they tear him apart? I'm not really sure. It's, it's hard to tell what they do to him. But basically, they bust open this, this container, and it's a little... Ugh, I, I assume it's a little vampire. <laughs> it is so wrong. Um, and all the vampires you know, bite their wrists so that they bleed and drip it all over this little vampire baby thing. uh, (laughs) That's exactly what I was going to call it. (laughs) And in the last page, it looks like a, the freaky uh, thing from a total recall coming out. Oh yeah. (laughs) Oh, it's just so bad. And you know, he's all bloody and he's like, (laughs) it is, Oh, it is very, very disturbing. Awesome issue though. Really quick read, but, oh, man, quite the visuals. I thought this issue rocked. I gave it a 9. I don't know. What did you think, Joe? Yeah, no, I agree completely. (laughs) Perfect for Halloween, I'll tell you that much. Oh, yeah. I got to start with the cover on this one. Because I don't think they showed this particular cover in the solicits. I didn't go back. I didn't get a chance to go back and check. But it's so simple. But you know, I'm a big fan of the Silent Hill video games. This just had a very Silent Hillish uh, vibe to it. So I just thought it was so cool, so simple. It's just you know, little illumination of Welcome to Alaska. It's got an X on the ground. It's got what's well, obviously Mulder and Scully, but you can't see their faces. And just so creepy, so appropriate for this book. And yeah. This is this is kind of a uh, format that I've noticed in, in uh, Niles's other writings. He'll take the first few issues, you know, to focus on the humans, and the vampires are always, you know, these kind of unseen monsters, unseen threat. And then, you know, he'll bring them to the foreground like this, and he's always really good about just. Uh, maybe he just tells the artist, "Hey, you know what? Have fun when you design these guys, because you know you you see the big uh, spread of them." And there's just some cool designs that I'm sure, you know, Tom Mandrake had some fun designing these guys. Because i tell you one thing about vampires in Steve Niles' world is, you know, they don't always survive very long. So so it is cool to to see them having some fun and actually designing them. And I'm sure, you know, if they took the time, they'd probably give them a backstory and all that good stuff. But yeah, this this issue was, was really, really good. I Yeah, that scene you were talking about where the, the Russians surround them and before you realize that they're not vampires... You know, I actually, for a second, yeah, I, I actually thought it was the vampires. And, and I was like, wow, you know, because the thing about a series like this is that you know that Mulder and Scully are going to make it to the end. And for the writers to make you believe, even for a second, that they might not, or or how are they going to get out of this one, that's to me, is a sign of good writing, especially, you know, when you know that the characters will survive. You know, from being in the Jim Lee panel, somebody asked him, you know, what kind of artwork to show, you know, to have a good portfolio. You know, and Jim was very specific. He said, no more than three pages. And if you want to draw, just do pencils. And he basically walked through a quick um, layout step by step, like, you know, kind of how a movie is shot. And, you know, you have your uh, 
establishing view and then you get closer and then you get closer and you know you don't need fighting to tell a good story and this one page is a perfect example of that with two words on the page you are completely convinced that they are screwed and being surrounded by vampires and not only is this good writing but this is perfectly done storytelling by the artist is it's just this is perfect that's exactly what they wanted to get across and that's a perfect example of it mm-hmm. yeah definitely like storyboarding i mean that's exactly what it came off as and yeah i mean that was great and i, and I love how you turn the page and yeah you see all these you find out they're rushing in a minute but they're just closing these like you know world war kind of world war one style suits you know with the gas masks and whatnot and uh so that was definitely a the, the one thing you know we we talked about you know welcome to tranquility number four and how how that fourth issue was really good you know i mean it really kicked everything up a notch and that's the way of you know that a fourth issue should be when you'll have six issues to work with this one was just like that too except it had so many things where it was just you know this was the first thing it's like okay we got russians now you know we're in alaska but we got russians now and so that was the first thing and then you know the second big twist was yeah the the guy with with no limbs and it's like all of a sudden you know you got this freaky looking character now we've got a deeper mystery than just simply you know because the the premise of the original 30 days of night was from what i remember it's just that they they wanted to take advantage of humans being trapped for 30 days and basically with no way out and this time you know that like i've said before is just the setting that's just allowing them to be out here but apparently now there's a new plot to deal with which is you know this artifact that the the man with no limbs is talking about and you know it is that artifact that you know they literally crack open like an egg and there's the little yeah vampire baby thing <laughs> if anybody here's another good example you brought up total recall if you've ever seen eraserhead by david lynch that's another good example of a freaky little baby thing <laughs> so i will say this if you went out and watched uh, paranormal activity 2 this weekend and it freaked you out come home and read this and you won't go to sleep for a couple days i promise <laughs> but yeah the awesome series somebody was asking me on comic vine this week if they should check it out i was like definitely you know i'm a casual fan of both 30 days and x-files and i'm loving this one you know i'm gonna pass this on to a, a friend of mine who's a x-files fan when it's done because it's just great. Speaking of great issues, <laughs> we are going to end on an awesome issue tonight. Uh, this was a very good comic week, by the way. Oh, by the way, I also gave X-Files a 9, just like you did. We have Ides of Blood, number 3, which is written by Stuart C. Paul, with art by Christian Duce, with the cover by, I, by Michael Geiger. Of course, it's sad that the imprint, you know, Wildstorm's imprint is ending, but... Man, I am so glad that this comic came along before it did, because I'm enjoying the heck out of this comic. I'm loving the art. I'm loving the story. I'll just tell you up front, I was really debating whether or not to give this one a 10, because I really enjoyed it that much. I ended up giving it a 9, just because I didn't want to be premature, you know, but there was, I just had so much fun with this issue. One thing I appreciated right away was that I'm starting to get the character straight. You know, we've talked about it's a very dense read, but, you know, I mean, that that wasn't a bad thing. It's just, you know, there's a lot of characters to introduce and, and you know, a lot of historical figures to introduce and some other ones that I'm sure, uh, you know, Stuart uh, made up for the for the story. 
And but that's the thing is that you know other than Valens, I couldn't tell you which one which ones were made up. They all seem like they fit. You know, the main one here we have is Brutus, who apparently is the you know mastermind behind the assassination, and you know he stepped up and and taken Caesar's place. And as they're reviewing the body, I mean, as they're like going over Caesar's body, he notices the uh, the vampire's bites on there, and there's something wrong. It seems to be infected. And then, you know, before they can get into that, before they can talk about that anymore, they find out that Valence has been captured. Then we move to Anthony, who is the current, you know, leader of the guards, and a very brutal torture scene between him and, and Valence. I mean, he cuts into Valence's face and literally rips the skin off. And I was just like, wow, that is wicked. And, of course, he keeps beating Valence, but Valence's face just heals right back up. So I would assume he probably has already done this to Valen several times. That's probably not the first time he's done that. But uh, then we move on and we see that uh, you know Valens does still have allies amongst the guards. He's got a can't say his name correctly. Scipio. See, some of these old Roman style names are hard to, to pronounce. So they go to visit the uh, Ioni, who is the uh, vampire basically prostitute that they went and captured in the first issue and she's in these pits where apparently they are pissed and defecated on <laughs> needless to say she's not happy to see Valens because he's the one who put her here but he is you know decided to ask for her help you know because he realizes that she's not the Pluto kiss killer he needs her help to find out who it really is because now everybody thinks that he's the one that killed Caesar when of course he didn't of course, she, you know, doesn't want to have anything to do with him, but he reminds her that if they don't deal with this problem, you know, uh, vampires are already being hunted as it is since the death of Caesar, and it's going to get worse. So she agrees, but uh, by that time, Anthony has showed up again, and he's basically created some sort of gladiatorial combat for them. He's lowered a huge cage that uh, is dangling in front of all the other prisoners, which I thought was weird that he would want to have this match shown to them and not like in the Colosseum. Then this turns almost like into a video game because we get to what I would consider the boss battle <laughs> where we have uh, him bring on basically what looks like a couple of vampire uh, monsters and I can tell the other two are vampires. They probably are. But it's just like the scene in Gladiator where Russell Crowe when he first you know fights and you see all those kind of just colorful characters that show up to fight him. This is kind of like that, except they're big, monstrous, and they're super fast and super strong. So it's um, four of them versus uh, Valens and Ioni. So this is where we begin an incredible fight <laughs> in the cage between the six of them. And there's just the, the creatures that I'm sure Christian Duce, you know, helped design are just amazing. I, you know, I, I love the designs for the creatures that he has in here. And, you know, between him and Ioni, they, they are able to, to take up the majority of them. And then Anthony shows that he's not, you know, he's not going to let them win that easily. He has all his guards basically take their uh, reflective shields and start reflecting the sunlight into the cage. You know, which, of course, burns Valens and Ioni and, and makes the match that much more interesting. But Valens and Ioni are um, able to deal with it long enough to take out the re remainder of the, of the monsters and... Then uh, Sapio comes and helps uh, deal with the cage as they finish off the last monster and causes the cage to crash below and take out some guards. 
and they're able to escape and of course Anthony's pissed and Palin's and I only have to escape through the sewers and they come out and I couldn't even begin to pronounce the place they're trying to get to, but it's basically where the last of the vampires have gathered. Just as you thought we didn't have enough colorful characters, we get to meet Ione's big sister, <laughs> who looks like this monstrous orc with a huge hammer and apparently a, a, a pet wolf that is just as big as she is. That's where the issue ends on a nice little cliffhanger, and I just thought that was an awesome issue. I mean, if you guys are not picking up Ides of Blood, I don't know what you want from a comic, because it's got great art. The writing is great. I noticed Stuart Paul seemed more comfortable with the dialogue here. He seemed to have a lot more fun with it. You know, these two guys, you you know, you're going to see them soon. You know, either Marvel or if DC's not careful, Marvel's going to pick these guys up, and and you're going to see them somewhere, and pretty soon you're going to be looking in the back bins for Ides of Blood because I don't know if this is going to get traded because of the whole Wildstorm thing. So these issues are going to be sought after. Just mark my words, Ben. Mark my words. <laughs> hey, I believe you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we started this, we got stuck with Sparta USA and mm-hmm. Garrison, unfortunately. And like you said, when you were starting out to review this, that we were so glad to get X-Files 30 Days and Ides of Blood right at the end of, you know, the Wildstorm run. And I agree wholeheartedly, like, this issue was awesome. I also gave this a 9. I don't know why I didn't give it a 10, honestly. Christian Duce's art, amazing. Getting his face ripped off, you see the muscle (laughs) and blood, it was just fantastic. I don't know if he's done it before to Valens, but he's definitely done it to a lot of other vampires to know how to do that, rip somebody's face off, but... I'm glad I know how to do it now. That was awesome. <laughs> if I ever have to rip somebody's face off in a pinch, geez. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, and the whole boss battle thing. I mean, just oh, it's just awesome. It was so much fun. And, and you had alluded to it earlier. This issue was so much easier to follow and read than the first two issues. You know, he had a lot of story to pack in those first two issues. He had a lot of characters in, to introduce. And kind of teach you about almost like uh Stuart C. Paul is almost you know being our historian and you know bringing up some of that stuff that we learned about in high school and middle school but kind of forgot about and this issue we didn't really have to worry about that too much and you know we kind of were already caught up and and that's what made this issue a lot of fun and it was well paced and it went by very fast and I loved it from beginning to end and why didn't you want to pronounce the Vericulaca Respublica? I mean, so it just rolls off the tongue. It's so easy. Now yeah, I don't. Have, I don't have much else to say. It was. I, I want a phonetic spelling of some of these, like Scipio. I don't even know how to say his name either. Scipio. Yeah. I get Stuart back on just to. Well, maybe we'll get him on for the last issue. Be like, okay, how do you say these names? <laughs> you did the research. Now help us. <laughs> Great issue. Go get this issue, guys. Come on. go. It's only three issues in. You can catch up. All right. Other Wildstorm releases we had this week. Astro City, The Dark Age 2, Brothers in Arms trade. We had Ratchet and Clank, number two of six. And the Talara Chronicles, number two of four. And the Victorian Undead uh, trade as well. We did have a few new digital comic offerings from Comicology.com, ranging between $0.99 cents and $1.99. Uh, they added Ex Machina number 14, Supernatural Beginnings in number 4, Gears of War number 9, Planetary number 13. Yay, they're still adding Wildstorm titles. Uh, <laughs> Wildstorm U titles. 
The Talara Chronicles number one, Trick or Treat number three, and Sleeper season one number one, two, and three. That's a great series. So if you guys never got to read Sleeper, um, they're just starting to release it on Comicsology, and I suggest you guys go download it because it's rocking. Mm-hmm. At least that's what people tell me because I've never technically read it. <laughs> <laughs> Confession. <laughs> hey, I'm working on it. I, I have a lot of backlog catalog that I have to read through. Yeah, um, well, you're going to have plenty of time now. <laughs> yeah, I know because I won't have to read anything new. Anyways, if you would like to contact Wildstorm Addiction, you can contact Joe. He's twitter.com slash grifter78. You can look me up. I'm on the Wildstorm resource wiki or on the Wildstorm message boards as long as they stay afloat. I am yo master 146 And if you'd like to hit up Wildstorm Addiction directly, you can find us at twitter.com slash wildstormaddict. And you can email us at wildstormaddiction at gmail.com. And we'd love it if you guys would email us and give us some suggestions on what we may do in January to keep the show going if you guys would like to hear us. So send us your ideas at wildstormaddiction at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. There was a lot of fun stuff to read this week, and I hope you guys all went out and got it. And I hope you enjoyed this Halloween edition of the Wildstorm Addiction. <laughs> Complete with arm limbless men and vampires. <laughs> and vampire babies. Yeah. Yes. Vampire baby things. <laughs> See you guys.